Hey, podcast listener. Are you working so hard you wonder if the money is even worth it? If you're like most CPAs I work with, you have way too much to do, you feel relentless deadline pressure, and worst of all, you feel torn between serving clients and being with family. What if I told you you could work a 40-hour week without losing a dime? I know it sounds impossible, but my Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is designed for CPAs just like you who want to get their lives back. Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is launching soon. In it, you'll learn how to start getting your time back week by week, make your workload manageable while still bringing in plenty of revenue, what to put in your packages and how to price them, and so much more. Don't leave your future to chance. CPA Mastermind will get you on the same profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there. Welcome to Epic Business Growth for CPAs. My name is Geraldine Carter, founder of She Thinks Big Coaching. This is the place to be if you're a CPA who wants to grow your accounting practice. Weekly episodes are full of strategies and action steps that create a clear path for growth without working harder. Time to get inspired and grow your business. Hi, everyone. I wanted to start the year off with top five books in review from 2019, but I couldn't help myself and I got to at least nine. There were so many great reads that I got through this year and I can't call the list to anything shorter. Some of these may be expected. Some of them might be unexpected. But let's start off with my favorite book from 2019, which totally surprised me. And frankly, I was really reluctant to read because I don't fashion myself to be a marketer or know anything about marketing. So Seth Godin's book, This Is Marketing, when I heard about it, I was like, yeah, no, I think I'm going to give that one a pass. That's not for me. And then I heard it was excellent and I thought maybe I should read it, but no, no, I'll just stick with the technical stuff. And then I heard some more really great reviews and, and, you know, I love Seth Godin, not the least of which, because he mentioned me in his Ted talk one time on tribes. So I'm a huge fan and I thought, all right, maybe I should give this book a shot. And then I forget what happened. I was in a bookstore and the book that I wanted to read wasn't available. They didn't have it in stock. And I saw his book on the shelf and I was like, okay, maybe now is the time that I'm going to read this book about marketing. <laughs> and I'm going to be really honest here and tell you that part of the reason I don't like marketing, <laughs> this is so awful, is because in engineering school, marketing was one of the majors that the engineers totally looked down their nose at, <laughs> which is ridiculous because marketing has just as much to do with numbers as anything else. And it's super duper important. But anyways, apparently I have a mindset issue around marketing, clearly. So I got over myself and I picked up his book and it turns out that it ranks right at the top of my list of favorite books for 2019 because most of us who trade in numbers and money and math and all things similar may have limited exposure to marketing and what it's about and how to be good at it. And I include myself right in that bunch. So one of the things that I especially love about Seth Godin is that he's very good at making his point while being brief. And he does that a lot in his, in this book. And it's a really easy read, right? You don't have to learn any major marketing principles. Two of the points that I think are most useful 
as it relates to CPAs. I'm going to start with the easy one first, even though that's not the order that it comes in in the book. And I'm just going to read right from his book. It's a couple lines. He says, the challenge for most people who seek to make an impact isn't winning over the mass market. It's the micro market. They bend themselves into a pretzel trying to please the anonymous masses before they have 50 or 100 people who would miss them if they were gone. And this speaks to me as it relates to CPAs because most of the people that I work with do not need thousands of clients. They don't even need hundreds of clients. When I work with an individual CPA who wants to have their small solo practice work independently, do their thing, and have control over their time, when we talk about their ideal client, who they would most like to work with, what that person is or would be paying them, what they need is a dozen or two dozen or three dozen clients. We're talking fewer than 50. They need a handful of well-paying clients who really value their expertise and their knowledge and their ability to sift through a lot of difficult information quickly in ways that saves that client heaps of money. If this is you, if you're a person who wants to be running a small show with 10 to 40 clients who pay you super well because you have deep knowledge in a certain area, it could be time to get really courageous about having a very specific message that just wins over the micro market. And what I see is most CPAs trying to win over the mass market in terms of their marketing. The second thing that I think is super useful, and I think you might like this one less, you know, part of the reason that we go into money and numbers and math is that we get to conveniently avoid anything emotional, (laughs) self-included, right? And what we sell as business owners has to do with emotion and feeling. And he calls it out here. He says, don't begin with your machines, your inventory, or your tactics. Don't begin with what you know how to do or some sort of distraction about your mission. Instead, begin with dreams, fears, and emotional states and the change your customers seek. And time and again, when I talk to regular business, not regular business owners, but non-CPA type business owners who own businesses that are not CPA practices, what they say they want is peace of mind. They want to be able to sleep at night. They want to feel confident that they know what's happening with their money. They want to stop the background nagging worry and anxiety about not having enough money or not knowing where it goes. They want to stop feeling stressed about their financial situation. They want to feel excited that they have a handle on things. When it comes to their money, I've never heard a business owner say to me, I want to make sure that I find a CPA who has a qualification as a QuickBooks Pro advisor. Never, ever, ever. I mean, okay, maybe occasionally. But rarely do I hear business owners talk about wanting to make sure that their CPA has certain qualifications. They don't know the difference. And they assume a minimum standard that if you are a CPA, that you know what you're doing when it comes to handling all things money, finance, tax, and compliance. Really what they want is somebody to help them make sense of it all and provide some guidance and insight so they can feel confident so they can sleep at night. As marketers of our own businesses, we tend to get caught up in tactics and know-how and certifications. If you're looking for more clients and in particular more of the right clients for you, 
Seth Godin's book, This Is Marketing, could be a really helpful read. My next favorite one this year was the fully revised fifth edition of the classic bestseller, Million Dollar Consulting, The Professional's Guide to Growing a Practice. This one I also picked up on, the, on a whim at an airport and quickly fell in love with it. I'm a sucker for good writing. And business writing can be so dry and so boring, and sometimes it's so researchy sounding that it's impossible to get through. Or another thing that happens is some brilliant mind who's a great business person writes a book and he's a terrible writer, and it's also really difficult to get through. I'm not going to name names. (laughs) Alan Weiss is an excellent writer. It's a joy to read this book. One of the things that I really appreciated about it was that it was like a compilation of a bunch of different concepts across a number of different books that I've read over the last few years, all put much more concisely into one nice, neat package. I also am a sucker for his wisecracking sense of humor. He talks a lot about pricing and retainer fees. And for example, he loves to remind us that nobody shops around for the cheapest heart surgeon. And say it with me three times, retainers are fees paid in return for access to your smarts. Retainers are fees paid in return for access to your smarts. One more time, retainers are fees paid in return for access to your smarts. Sometimes I hear of people positioning retainers in their business as you give me a $10,000 deposit And as you call me and use up my time, I will deduct money from your $10,000 deposit. That's one way of having a retainer, but that's not the way that he's talking about. It's you pay me $10,000 and for whatever period of time you have as much access to my smarts as you want. And if you use it, great. And if you don't, also great. Sometimes I find that a business concept doesn't quite make it through into my brain until I hear it positioned the right way. And I've been hearing this term, know your customer journey, know your customer journey for the longest time. And I'm like, what does that mean? Know your customer journey. I don't get it. And it wasn't until Alan Weiss put it in a graph that I got it. And I was like, okay, that's what that means. So if you take the graph that I often cite in these episodes, which looks like, sorry, Y equals one over X, where it's really... It goes way up close to the y-axis and you have your top clients who pay you a lot of money and then it goes asymptotically out towards the right, towards infinity on the x-axis and you have a lot of clients who aren't paying you very much. That could look like for you a number of clients who come in once a year for your taxes way out on the x-axis and then maybe some of them, if we're going to go from right to left, I wasn't being very clear, then maybe some of them bump up and they use you for your accounting services. And then some of them move up even more as we go towards the y-axis and they have your accounting services as well as payroll. And then some of them bump up even more, your top clients, and they seek your advice monthly, if not more frequently. When he says, know your customer journey, I finally got it. I was like, oh, some CPAs, their clients come to them starting out one year with taxes only. And then the following year, they move their books and their accounting over. And then the following year, they add their payroll in. And then the third year in, they start to come more frequently for advice and strategy. So for some CPAs, the customer journey follows the path of starting small with taxes and adding services over time. 
some clients do what he calls parachute in and they just go straight to being top clients. Once I saw it on the graph, I went, oh, okay, that's what know your customer journey means. And what was most helpful about that was the amount of effort and time that it takes to acquire customers who parachute in versus customers who travel the breadcrumb trail of taxes only in year one, add accounting services in year two, and maybe add advising in year three or four. And just how much longer it takes for a client to travel that path than it does for one of them to parachute in and become a top client right away. I love Alan Weiss's book. I have a few more of them on back order or on my reading list now. So I hope you'll put that one on your list right behind Seth Godin's. Another favorite of the year is How Women Rise by Sally Helgeson and Marshall Goldsmith. If you've never heard of Marshall Goldsmith, he wrote What Got You Here Won't Get You There, which is among my favorite books on human development. Sometimes we get a place and we think we got there <laughs> because of certain strengths, like bulldozing our way through and putting our heads down and grinding it out. And what got us here won't be the thing that will get us there. Right. And sometimes we got here, sometimes we believe that we got to where we are because of whatever way we do things like bulldozing, putting our heads down and grinding it out. But sometimes we got here despite the fact that we bulldoze and put our heads down and grind it out. And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me, <laughs> just for example. And um, this notion of what got you here won't get you there is so useful in your business because as you grow, it requires that you develop a new set of skills to get you to the next level. What I especially love about what got you here won't get you there, I guess it should be on my list, maybe it is by de facto, is that he gets so vulnerable and enlists the help of other people to help him see, this is the author, Marshall Goldsmith, to help him see when he's off track and when he's on track and gets real-time feedback from people, which requires an incredible level of humility and vulnerability. So anyways, he partnered with Sally Helgeson to write this book, How Women Rise, because he realized that the book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, was for executives, the vast majority of whom were men, and that women have some overlapping, but also some quite different challenges that they face. And one of the ones that I want to point out in How Women Rise is something that I see all over the place and really opened my own eyes to the fact that I do this too. Habit one, reluctance to claim your achievements. You probably know women, and maybe some men too, who don't want to brag, who were told to be humble, and some version of not to shine lest you make other people feel uncomfortable. This shows up in my clients as let me give you an example. One of my clients was on a podcast and I was listening to the episode and she was being interviewed by um, the podcast host and the podcast host was asking her something super relevant about her expertise. And my client said something along the lines of when I used to run marathons and went on to like, da, 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 da. And I heard this and I was like, wait a minute. I know that my client has done more than quote unquote, I used to run marathons as she put it. So in our next session, I was like, Hey Beth. So I heard you on that podcast episode a couple weeks ago in it, you said you used to run marathons and da, 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 da. Like it was no big deal. Like you casually ran a few five hour marathons, but I think you've done more than that. 
And she's like, oh yeah, I've run 19 marathons. <laughs> and, which I had known, but had forgotten. But then she went on to tell me, yeah, and I missed qualifying for the Olympic marathon by two positions. And this is what I'm talking about. And I want to bang my fist on the desk is that we leave off important, highly relevant, topical achievements in the interest of not making ourselves look too big, in the interest of not making others potentially feel small, in the interest of kind of keeping it comfortable for everybody else. I see this across the community of female business owners, and I'm going to own one for myself. And that is when I was on Mike Michalowicz's Grow My Accounting Practice podcast. Beforehand, they had asked me to send over my bio and a brief description and blah, blah, blah. And Mike Michalowicz and his co-host Ron Saharian, they have a good sense of humor and they're kind of, they're playful and kind of muckety-muck. And so I put some fun factoids in there about me that I have like a wicked down the line backhand in ping pong. And I don't know exactly how it got lost or left off, or maybe I didn't include it. But what I can tell you is that when the podcast interview was happening and they were introducing me and they were reading the bio that ostensibly I had sent to them, what was not included <laughs> was that Geraldine has an engineering degree from an Ivy League university. She co-founded a company that she grew to $1.2 million in six years at the start of the recession and that I'm a certified coach through the International Coach Federation, right? All of that was like whoosh, gone, <laughs> totally gone and hugely relevant to the podcast interview that we were about to do. And somehow I had completely managed to leave it off, right? And like two episodes later, I'm listening to one of their guests who had gone to Harvard and she had no bones about listing that in her bio. And I was like, oh my God, that is exactly how it sounds when we leave off our accomplishments and our achievements. So that was quite a painful moment for me in my own self-development. And that's just one of 12 habits that women are more prone to doing than men in business. So I highly recommend it. How Women Rise, Sally Helgeson and Marshall Goldsmith. Incidentally, I would love to get Sally on the podcast. If any of you know her, please make a connection. Okay. Number four, speaking of Mike Michalowicz, I absolutely adore him as an author and a writer. I think he takes business concepts and makes them simple, easy to digest and fun with great stories that bring the material alive. So this year I reread the pumpkin plan because I'd read it a couple years back and I was like, that's great, but I'm not quite, eh. but this time I was like, yep, 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 yep. Right. It all made sense. The one thing that stands out to me in the pumpkin plan is finding your business's sweet spot. It's the overlap in the Venn diagram of three circles, your top clients, your unique offering and systematization. If you're only working with your best clients and you're offering a unique product or service, but you can't easily systematize it, you'll be under constant pressure because you'll never have enough time or money. You'll always be trading dollars for hours. This I see a lot in my clients who get to the end of the week, they've worked a 40 or a 60 hour work week and they're still not making the amount of money that they want to is because they're still billing dollars per hour and there are not enough hours in the week at the price you're billing to make the math add up. 
If, however, you're offering a unique product or service and it's easy to systematize, but basically nobody wants it, then there are no best clients to be found. And then you're hosed. The third option is if you're working with your best clients and you can easily systematize it, but your offering is far from unique, your offer is just like everybody else's, then you're going to get beat up on price. And if you're getting beat up on price, then it's a race to the bottom and it's very difficult for you to grow. Little side note here, because I love the pumpkin plan so much and the process in the pumpkin plan, and because it's so applicable to especially CPAs and other clients that I work with, but especially CPAs, I've decided to become a pumpkin plan strategist. And in the next few weeks, probably by the time you're listening to this, I will be a certified pumpkin plan strategist. That means that for people who are interested in so-called pumpkin planning their business and figuring out who their top clients are, determining their unique offering and figuring out how to systematize it so that they don't have to work so hard all the time, going through that process will be available. It means access to all the pumpkin plan tools. It means access to all the expertise that is housed underneath Mike Michalowicz and his co-founder and president of Pumpkin Plan Your Biz, Donna Lyons, who I had on back in episode 60 or 61, sometime back in September. So if you're at all curious to know more about that, please do reach out. Easiest way to find me is Geraldine at SheThinksBigCoaching.com. Okay, number five. I have three in a row here around money and money mindset. And here's why. And I'm going to do an episode on this topic. I promised it way back in May or something. I need to return to it. But it's this idea of unconditional love of money. And for probably a lot of you, that gets your... This is one of those uh, things that I mix up your shackles up or your hackles up. One of the two. <laughs> I think it's your hackles. <laughs> I think shackles are things around your feet, right? So unconditional love of money. And we all go, what? <laughs> That's not supposed to be. But here's the problem. Most of us have grown up with all kinds of crazy ideas about money. And most of us get our ideas about money from our family of origin, probably our parents, and then from society and surroundings. But if you got what you know about money and the messages you know about money from your parents, then chances are good that they got their beliefs about money from their parents, who got their beliefs about money from their parents, and it hasn't been updated in generations. So chances are decent that what you know and think about money, those beliefs could date as far back as the 1850s. And so many of us get so confused about money, right? Because we have this idea that we want more of it. And yet in wanting more of it, that makes us greedy. And we instantly put ourselves in this double bind. I want more, but I'm bad if I want more. <laughs> so no, how are we supposed to get out of that? And we've also had moments in our life where money has made us look really bad. Like maybe you bounced a check last year and you feel shame around it. Or maybe you went out to dinner and you didn't have enough to cover your part. Or you couldn't just pull out your credit card and be like, it's cool, everyone, I got this one, you guys get the next one. And you felt some amount of embarrassment around that. Or maybe you've overspent, heaven forbid, right? And you feel guilty for having overspent. 
Or maybe you've done your numbers at the end of the year and not made nearly as much as you thought you could, should, or would have. And you feel some combination of guilt, embarrassment, or shame about all of that. So probably at many points in your life, money has made you feel like some variation of crap. And yet you want more of it, even though it makes you feel like crap. So it gets very confusing. Many of us have this very confusing relationship with money. And then we resent it for being so confusing. (laughs) Stupid object. I wish I could just forget about you and pretend like it didn't matter. Right. And then we, so we get in this space of resenting money and we know that resenting other people is something we don't want to do. Right. We don't benefit when we resent other people. And we know that resenting ourselves is really bad because it's to a degree, even worse than resenting other people. So we know that resentment is a bad thing, but here we are resenting money. And as business owners, when we have this kind of double bind going on of, I want more money, but money makes me look bad, or I want more money, but money, I hate you, just go away. It really gets in our way of being able to freely make more of it and be joyful in making more of it. So I've kind of given away the episode. I just buried it, right? (laughs) What's that called in journalism? You bury the lead. But anyways, I'll do another round of that at some point. But there are three books that speak to all things relationship with money, money mindset, and so on. And when I was looking at which one of these should I read, they were all highly rated and people recommended all of them. I was like, I can't decide. I can't decide. Well, I'll just read all three. Right. So I read all three kind of together, not back to back to back, but like a few pages here of one, a few pages there of the other. One's in the office, one's in the bedroom, that kind of thing. So The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist was an eye-opening book for me. There was a lot in here that I did not know about how people could potentially relate to money, including that some people feel guilty for having received too much of it and feeling like they don't deserve it, either through inheritance or having done really well in business or any other reason. And I didn't know that that was a thing. I also didn't know the personal extent to which people can weaponize it inside their families. So I thought that was quite interesting. It also helped me see how money flows and think of money flowing versus getting restricted in the system. And now as I work with more business owners, I kind of see how business, how money flows through businesses and flows through our community. And this idea of money flowing rather than getting blocked up and bottled up in certain places was also quite interesting. So this The Soul of Money has a spiritual side to it, which I found refreshing. There's also Overcoming Under Earning by Barbara Stanny, and I haven't said this yet, but I will put links to all of these in the show notes. She takes a pretty straightforward approach at all the different ways that we put a glass ceiling on our own earning power. And then who can turn down a chance to read Jen Sincero, You Are a Badass at Making Money? I adore her sense of humor. I love her writing style. And if anybody is a pro at getting out of your own way and just making it happen, Jen Sincero's it. So if it's time for you to refresh or update what you believe about money, and if it's stuck back in the 1850s or even the 1950s or the 1980s, and it's time for a reboot and an overhaul, any one of these three books will do you right. Okay, number eight, boundaries when to say yes, how to say no to take control of your life. 
So many of the business challenges that I see across my clients are somehow related to boundaries. And even this morning, I had a conversation with a client about her challenge in saying no to people out of fear of them being displeased. And I haven't said this lately, so I'll say it again. There's a thing about you can't please everyone. And I would say that you can't please anybody. It is not your job. It's not your purview. And it's not within your ability to please other people, right? Other people's happiness, pleasure, whatever is entirely up to them. And just because you do something and they're happy and those two things are correlated does not imply causation. So for people who have a difficult time saying no, because they like to people, please remember that you cannot please anybody. They might be pleased, but that's up to them. At any rate, coming back to boundaries, when to say yes, how to say no, take control of your life. So many of the business challenges that I see in one way or another come back to having clear and strong boundaries, not rigid, but strong and being able to hold to them when you're being put in a position you might be uncomfortable in. And this touches everything from scope creep and time to raising your rates to people asking for discounts to friends and family discounts to allowing people to be behind on invoices to not updating your prices and on and on and on. There's a very good chance that weak boundaries are cropping up somewhere in your business. Now, I have to add a disclaimer to this book because it's written by, I can't remember if they're priests or pastors, 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 but they are Christian and they don't pull any punches in being Christian in the book. And if you are not a reader of the Bible, or even if you are, I've heard from many, many, many people that they find the Christianity and the references to biblical verses to be over the top. Some also say that the content can be patronizing. I found it to be both. I did also find it to be useful biblical education that I didn't get enough of when I was young. So I was willing to learn from it. If you're prone to getting a bit irritated from something that's a bit too preachy, my suggestion is do the best you can to set it aside and just go for the content because the content really is excellent. So look past whatever else you don't like in order to benefit from the content. Okay, number nine, no reading list is complete without a book from Brene Brown, right? Or Elizabeth Gilbert. So I finally got around to reading The Gifts of Imperfection, which <laughs> makes me laugh because you know how there are those books that you're like, God, I wish somebody had given this to me 15 years ago. <laughs> this slim little book is packed with goodness. One of the themes that weaves through my clients is just how hard they are on themselves. And mistakes and maybe goals that weren't reached, they would never be so hard on a friend of theirs as they are on themselves about the things that they have quote unquote done wrong. And there are many passages inside this book that I have snapped photos to and texted off to my clients and said something like, I read this passage and it made me think of you. And a lot of my clients have already read this book. So it's easy for me to reference it and send it back to them. I still hear perfectionism sprinkled throughout in people's language. 
and the expectation that the work that we do be perfect, as if somehow perfect is the standard, if it could even exist. And so often I'll hear people say things like, oh, I'll, I have this thing, I'll send it to you. It's not perfect, but da 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 Or in a knitted or sewn Christmas gift when handed to me or to whoever. Here, I made you this hat. It's not perfect, but da 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 The point is not for it to be perfect. And somehow we've adopted this idea that we must get things perfect. So in reading this book, it has tuned my antenna to listen for when people use the word perfect in any of its forms in speech and other underlying ways that they might be expecting themselves to only do things perfectly or expecting other people to only do things perfectly. And I've even started becoming aware of me using it with my daughter, who's four, who you heard singing possibly in the last couple episodes, coloring whatever little thing she does. I'll just be like, oh, perfect. Or she'll give me something and I'm like, oh, perfect. And I just use it as a way of saying great. Oh, this is great. Oh, this is perfect. Oh, you gave me this perfect. But I'm still using this word perfect. So uh, this book, The Gifts of Imperfection, now suddenly has me going, oh, wait a minute. Maybe I don't want to be using this word to perfect as equal to great because I might accidentally be indoctrinating my own daughter with this idea that only perfect is great, right? Oops, <laughs> not, not what I want to be doing. But the book, of course, goes well beyond just the sort of micro piece around perfectionism. It's about letting go of what people think. It's about letting go of numbness and powerlessness. It's about letting go of scarcity. It's about letting go of the need for certainty, letting go of comparing. This one really struck a chord. Letting go of productivity as a status symbol <laughs> and as a measurement of self-worth. Oh, I love this one. Letting go of anxiety as a lifestyle, letting go of self-doubt and supposed to, and of being cool and always in control. There's so much richness in this book that I might just have to read it again in 2020. So that's my reading list from 2019. Hope you found something in there to enjoy that will potentially contribute to your own inside transformation and by proxy contribute to the transformation of your business and lead to you living a whole and beautiful life. In an effort to put two lessons from all these books into play, one of them being better about boundaries and my time, and an effort to make imperfect podcast episodes, I'm going to wrap it up right there and wish you a wonderful week. Like I said earlier, if you want to know what any of these books are, find links to them. I'll have those in the show notes, which are lovingly put together by my VA, Maria, in the Philippines every week. And in the spirit of thanks for excellent work, my podcast editor, Tim Wahlberg, up in Canada. You can find links to these books in the show notes, shethinksbigcoaching.com. If you want to reach out to me, you can contact me through the website or you can email me directly, Geraldine at shethinksbigcoaching.com. And last thing is know that I would love to work with you. Oh, you know what I should have put in? See, talk about leaving accomplishments off. I should have put in a link to my ebook. 
I wrote an ebook. It's called Six Easy Steps to Double Your Revenue. Because here's the thing, it is straightforward to double your revenue. There is no magic or secret sauce. And clients who implement get results. You can get the steps that I take my clients through in my ebook. It's at shethinksbigcoaching.com. All you have to do is go there and leave your email address. Really, the main challenge for people is implementing and staying on track. And what happens for my clients is that it's just too many details swirling around and it's very difficult to stay on track and implement what's most important because they're so kind of wrapped up in the day-to-day of their businesses. That's the real challenge of doubling your revenue, right? It's not knowing what to do. It's finding the time and the focus and the stick with itness to do it when it's not easy. So go get the ebook, shethinksbigcoaching.com. We'll make that number 10 on the list for 2019. I suppose it wasn't on the list because I didn't read it because I wrote it. All right, everyone. That's it for me for this week. Here's wishing you a very successful and fulfilling 2020. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.